Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. Nuclear. No. Nuclear. God damn it. (laughs) It, It's not nuclear, but that's what you say. That's the Bushism. Oh, yeah. Nuclear. It's nuclear. 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 God, I cannot say (laughs) it. I'm going to make you write that on a chalkboard like a hundred times. That is is weird because it is nuclear, but like everyone says nuclear. Not everyone. I say nuclear. (laughs) I say nuclear. I feel like I I think switch. Well, I actually had a speech impediment when I was a kid. You are handicapped. Yeah. He's double handicapped. Yeah, double <laughs> handicapped. Colorblind and speech impediment. He's, he's he our, see, he, he is our diversity on this podcast. <laughs> 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 he's bald, handicapped, and colorblind. My first suggestion for the podcast name was three white guys in a room, but uh, that, didn't, that didn't go over well. I mean, I think that describes about 98% of podcasts. So. <laughs> True. Uh, not a great differentiator, but you know, it's all right. It's all right. Kyle's Jewish. He's fine. <laughs> 5%. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the banks. <laughs> oh, shit. Just perpetuating stereotypes. Oh, man. Uh, that, that definitely got flied by Brookings Institution. <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of which, actually, this was interesting. So your video about, um, what was it that we were talking about? Oh, the, the FBI suggesting to social media companies that they yeah. uh, censor different people started out really slow. And I thought for sure it was getting censored on YouTube because it mm-hmm. had like 10 views after maybe eight hours. And I checked it like late, kind of right before I went to bed yesterday and it had almost 2000 views and like 70 or 80 likes. So I was like, it actually took off. Wow. It just was like this delayed start. And I don't mm. know, I don't know what it is that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to get traction on any yeah. of these social just media call, call it the FB. <laughs> yeah, FBI. We, we, we just, we, we, we just call them the alphabet boys. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It, does intelligence state like, is that any less, you know, I don't know. Yeah. we got to experiment. You think they're flagging. They might be flagging it. Mm. Well, yeah. Th- that was one of those things. Cause we, we played the clip and then you and Henri just like got super animated. You, you both were just like, cut it. <laughs> just went into it. <laughs> Kyle, you're a little dynamic. So if you're going to get loud, you got to back up us a little bit. Hello. Just so you know, <laughs> you're clipping just a little, but yeah. uh, but I'm I'm moderating you. Feels like we've already started, guys. Howdy, yeah. How are you? Howdy, good. How are you? Good. David, uh, what's your what's your what's your th- who are you? What's your deal? What's your deal, man? <laughs> uh, I am a professional libertarian of sorts. I think that's that's one way to say what I do. Though the category of libertarian is divisive at times. Like people don't. It, it's interesting. I was having a conversation. Someone said, "I'm a libertarian." And then proceeded to describe a bunch of views that I don't hold. And so I was like, oh, am I a libertarian? <laughs> Do we just not understand each other? Have I been misunderstanding this thing the whole time? Am I wrong? But uh, so that's the thing. That's the problem with categories, right? Um, but definitely at some point in my life, I decided that my aim, my goal would be to lead a life of meaning by advocating for the things that matter to me. Um, lots of things matter to me that aren't politics, that are philosophy, that are just life stuff, you know, having kids, for example, or being a good, uh, person, but there's lots of elements of, you know, advocating that with my job and my life outside of my job and everything I do that has provided with me a lens to see the world that's meaningful that I want to share. Uh, cause what I see is a lot of people who 
um, events are just chaotic. There's no connection. There's no background. There's no, and because I'm in a position to be able to view and then hopefully integrate things to hopefully make the world that much better, uh, by advocating for those values that I think are good and make the world a better place. Yeah. Why? Well, what are those values? Like on a very, very high level look at it. Oh man. Uh, self-ownership is where it always starts. Right. And that's, that's to me is the defining characteristic of a libertarian. And then the ethical principles that deduce from that, um, and are applied consistently. So many people will declare self-ownership, uh, across lots of domains and then find themselves, you know, at odds once it's applied to government. And that's where we usually diverge with a whole series of other people where they'll say, yeah, absolutely. You, your actions are your actions and no one else can claim a higher claim on your actions than you. Uh, but then when the government does that on your behalf, somehow it's magical and it doesn't apply anymore. So when you uh, say claim a higher claim, can you clarify that? Yeah. So, uh, the, the devil can't make you do it, right? You did Ultimately, that Ultimately you yeah. are responsible yeah, for so your I, own actions. Now, this was something I suggested really quickly on a previous episode where I was like the, the precursor to responsibility as a value is self-ownership. It starts, the ontology is actually self-ownership. The expression, the verb of self-ownership is responsibility. Uh, so saying you are responsible for yourself. And it's people, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't degrade the value of charity. It doesn't degrade the value of social cooperation. All it says is that at the end of the day, you own you. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be charitable with yourself. It doesn't mean you shouldn't forgive yourself when you make mistakes. Well, it almost means that you should be charitable because you're responsible for your own self, but also your own contribution to your community and your impact that you have on the people around you, right? That's right. And, and part of that is, is, you know, the belief based upon evidence and the, and the, the buttressing uh, around the core theory that without a central planner, things can still go well. Uh, we can solve social problems without the government coming in to solve it. We can, uh, that the best way to solve a social problem, there's only three ways, right? You provide it for yourself and solve that problem. Well, the problem with that isn't scale. Right, that's uh, subsistence subsistence farming. The second way is that you have a problem and I have a solution. You trade for that, but you compensating me for the solution to your problem. Mm -hmm. The third way is that you take it from me by force. By force, and that is the distinguishing characteristic, uh, which is another way to kind of put that put that into a larger box. It's like a think of it like a Russian nesting doll. Is voluntarism sits over that and it says what's voluntary reveals people's actual preferences. And allows people to embody in the world the world they want to see. Where when you have a centrally planned arrangement, people don't get that opportunity to live their values or actually express what they want to see in the world. Uh, they're compelled to create the world through force. Uh, and that has all kinds of distortions and negative outcomes. It doesn't mean that the market process or volunteerism doesn't have negative outcomes. Of course, people can choose poorly. They can uh, do worse for themselves and for others. But they have the persistent example of virtue to follow, where in the current situation, there is no example of virtue to follow because the virtuous, the people who arrange these situations are the people who are using violence to make it happen. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to dig in on there. One, you know, you, you in these three ways of, of solving a problem, the last one is to take it from you or to, you know, to use force. That in a libertarian philosophy, as far as I understand it, is equated with government, right? With the centrally planned environment and situation that we currently find ourselves in for people that are like, well, I don't see it that way. Like, how can we, can you, can you illuminate why the government is inherently the use of force or coercion? Right. So in its actions. Yeah. You have to define government as a good, is a good place to start. What is the government? 
Uh, if you ask uh, Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders, they say the thing that we all do together. And I would disagree with that. The thing we all do together is probably much more looking like the market process where we collaborate and coordinate together using structures, institutions and structures that allow us to peacefully cooperate to solve problems together. That's what a corporation of business is. That's what a partnership is. That's what all these different structures are. Uh, the better definition for government is a monopoly of force in a particular geographic area, meaning no one else can use just force except for this one entity. Uh, An example of that would be, uh, say, policing. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that an example of the monopoly on force? Yeah. Policing is like the rubber hits the road component of that, right? So if you say, I think the government should, that always results in someone with a gun enforcing that thing, right? Because if I refuse to do it, they issue a fine. I refuse to pay the fine. Uh, they will issue a warrant. If I refuse to obey the summons, they will send a person with a gun to go enforce. And maybe that's something you want. Maybe that's something that is, it's so important they need to get there. I'm, I'm open to that question, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the burden of evidence is on you that it is a worthy use of the eventual murder or imprisonment of somebody. The impingement upon someone else's autonomy and rights, mm-hmm. ultimately. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, the origins of this idea uh, go back to what's called classical liberalism, which had a precursor in what was called the Levelers, right? The Levelers were the very first people to really articulate this idea cohesively. And we don't have their writings directly, actually. We have kind of the suggestion of their writings that then got embodied in the classical liberal tradition. These folks, basically, they, and their, their, their signature, the thing that we really have of the best evidence of their kind of result was a simple idea. No man is born with spurs on his feet. And no man is born with a saddle on his back, right? That was the idea that the nobility is not better than you. They're, we're all born naked and alone in this universe. No one's better than anyone else. And that, and, and we can we can embody that and put that a box around called that equal rights. Um, that was the that was the start of a tradition that evolved bottom up out of just the arrangement that this happened to evolve naturally in the legal common system of. Uh, Northern Europe. Um, this is a little bit Dutch, Norway and England that then got kind of built upon and built upon and built upon uh, until classical liberalism. Now there was uh, this thing called a counter-revolution is what I call it. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the the academic. He wrote the Machiavellians who, who coined that term. Uh, James Burnham, the father of neoconservatism. Yeah. James Burnham, uh, who called it the counter-revolution, which was basically this moment in in history where what happened was the progressives came in and they basically said, well, yeah, the, the market process is good and communism doesn't work. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to harness the market process for the aims of the state. So we're going to preserve what we like about statism and communism and nationalism. And instead of having all these property owners using their, their property in the way they want, they can only use property in the aims that suit, you know, the, the leaders in power. And so they kind of put these boxes around what that means. And now, so now a lot of times when we talk about laissez-faire capitalism or we talk about uh, the free market, or we talk about the, uh, well, what I would like to talk about is the end result of free people making choices and solving problems. They say the problem with that is it's anarchic. There's just no centralizing force to make sure it's all going the right direction. Cause we're all in the same boat, uh, it, trying to steal man the argument. We're all in the same boat. We're all competing in the global stage. We're all on the same planet. So we've got to make sure that there's someone organizing everything to make sure it's heading the right direction where, uh, I'm very skeptical that anyone has that knowledge the ability or capability to know where the right direction is to go. Instead, we should allow everyone to go to the direction that best suits them, that synergizes with their family and their community 
And that's, that's the idea of a, a holistic ethic that allows us to do the things that make our lives better by making other people better off. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Okay, so earlier you mentioned virtuous people and in the context of, um, I think, making decisions that are beneficial to others. I think maybe one of the primary objections that someone might have to the philosophy of like why libertarianism could work in the real world is that there are so many divergent priorities, needs, worldviews. Everyone is so different. Their aims are so different. It seems impossible on its face that everyone could possibly come together and collaborate towards common ends without some sort of unifying force. And so you, you, you mentioned virtue and I just want to dig in a little bit because I feel like within libertarianism, it's so tactical, it's so rational that morality doesn't really ever enter the conversation or, or it's, it's tough to broach that because the mm. first argument is, well, you're a libertarian. You think everyone should be able to run their life the way that they want. So you don't have a right to speak on moral issues. Right. So where do virtues come from? How does morality intersect with the idea of, of a market uh, and, and libertarianism as a philosophy? Oh man, great question. So uh, at least one of the parts I'll start with, and if I don't get to every point there. I know that was a lot. Return so to it. Yeah. So the first one is, I think there's an interesting division that I like to make, but it's completely arbitrary, right? It's a philosopher's distinction between morals and ethics, right? So just for the purpose of this argument, I'm going to make a division. Morals are the things you ought not do, right? Don't steal, don't lie, don't take other people, uh, don't hurt anyone, don't harm other people. Um, the other one, ethics, is what you ought to do. So what we want is a system that has strong reason or strong bounds on what people ought not do that says, Hey, you've harmed somebody. Here's a process. So that person can be made whole. Uh, Hey, you've harmed someone. Here's a disincentive to harming anyone else. And on the other side of that, of ethics, the question is which ethics, right? Like wh whose ethics are we going to adopt? And what I, what I, what I think is, was great about the libertarian approach to that is it says, we don't know. Ethics is a process. We don't know it ahead of time. Now, we have lots of theory. We have lots of guesses about this. And we, we look at our ancestors. We can look at our history. We can say, we can appeal back to that and say, hey, these are good reasons to think these are good ethical ways of how you ought to behave in the world. But we don't know that. And the circumstances that we have to, implot, to, a, to embody those ethics in the world are so diverse. And the world is so complex that we have to boil them down to simple lessons and then allow people to experiment with those things and then see the results. Um, the... The, the idea is that you create a peaceful society that tolerates ethics of diverging aims and then says, we're going to allow a discourse to boil up the best ideas from the bottom so that individuals embody their values, test out those ethics in the real world, and then when it works, you know, be celebrated for those such things and then articulate why they think it works and then be criticized on why it might not be working. 
and then be, uh, um, you know, and then the lesson be learned or the idea consolidated down to a narrative that's simple that can then persist on. And that's how all ethical thinking happens in the first place. Any religious text, anything that you're looking at is a consolidation of prior experience into a, a fundamental prescription for, hey, here's a good way to think about how to deal with this ethical quandary in this case, or maybe in that case broadly. So it's actually a continuation of a much older tradition in that sense that, we're saying we don't know, we can't know. Uh, there's no divine revelation that everyone agrees on. So let's make it peaceful and get the state out of involved in deciding what the best result is, so that individuals can then negotiate those values themselves and then arrive at the at the decision that works best for them, and then tell their neighbors, so their neighbors can then articulate those things to the next generation with their neighbors. Well, and that's that's piggybacking off what you said there. That's one of the problems with centralized power is that there tends to become this. Uh, forceful homogenization of different cultures to all kind of unite together when those cultures don't necessarily um, share the same values. So, that, so then you're you're ending up in a in a geographical location under a monopoly of violence, bringing all these people together that don't actually agree with each other. And 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 when they can't agree with each other, like how are you how are you supposed to let them or how are they supposed to like govern each other? Right? Like you're, you're then you're voting one group to rule over another group, and then resentment. Uh, resentment just kind of spreads like a virus throughout the society. And I think that's where most uh, large empires end up falling is that they just end up collecting and expanding so many different groups that just can't get along together. But in a more libertarian paradigm, one of the most peaceful ways that these people can interact with each other is through things like trade. Um, they have different uh, divisions of labor and what they uh, produce in their marketplaces. And that's how they come together. But when you have the centralization of power, you end up just having them all have to, you force them to get along. Like that doesn't work. Right. Right. All right. And it ultimately results in like what you're saying, especially in a democratic institution, one group for a time dominating the other, uh, using that power. It then builds resentment, which resentment politics, you can write an entire book about just, just that alone. Powerful force. Tremendous background to everything that happens. Um, you could look at the entire Trump movement as a resentment politics, right? For what people prescribe to be being a victim uh, of another group. And then we say, well, we're going to, we're going to put the right person in power. It's going to fix it. Well, that ultimately cannot because the, the solution is freedom. The solution is freedom, tolerance, openness, equal rights. We treat everyone the same and simple rules of, of what they ought not to do and allow people to discover what they ought to do. That is a much better, more peaceful society. It's never happened before, right? It's not like a sustainable, constant, like if, if everything just disappeared, that's where we go to. Everything is up to human dis discovery, action, and behavior. So the way people, way people discover these ideas, embody them in the world is what creates that world, right? So it, would, it requires people to say, no, no I, this, is, this is a philosophy that I can agree with as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a Mormon, as a whatever, whatever other values you have, you're saying, I, but I'm not going, I'm, the one thing I will not do is use the monopoly force to enforce my social vision on the world. That's all it requires. Um, and then applying that consistently, <laughs> right. And saying, oh yeah, it applies to, you know, abortion issues, but it does not apply to what you're allowed to have on your phone. So we're going to ban TikTok or something like that. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. Well, and, and, yeah, the the Trump thing is, I think, accurate. And then also the left wing uh, kind of 
elements of everything that's going on with the left is it's also a resentment and people mm. scapegoating their problems around right mm. um like po populism seems to very much be a symptom of resentment that has spread over decades if not centuries mm. and then it all just boils up into this massive polarity that we have now mm. and I, I don't know how you fix it with the centralized power because you're just going to have one dominating another at the end of the day. And then because of our system, it ends up just, they end up going back and forth like a pendulum <laughs> in, in the domination. Well, and I think to that point, Kyle, a lot of people think that one of the major faults of libertarianism is that because by its very nature, the philosophy is one of decentralization and sort of dismantling of this power structure, that there's not really a good mechanism in place for libertarian minded people to mount a resistance to the forces that are more geared towards centralizing authoritarian control over over people so is libertarianism as a political entity as a political movement viable right now especially in this environment of polarity because it sort of lacks that like how do how do how does someone take a libertarian philosophy and apply it within the current political paradigm so at least part of this is it always there's a there's a veil behind what we do, right? So one of the biggest debates before they abolish slavery is what are you going to do with all the slaves? And how do you compensate the slave owners? Because you're removing their property. Those are the wrong premises, right? People who are set free will decide for themselves how best to organize their lives and how best to go forward once you free them. No one should ever own a person. And so there's no compensation of course, for slave owners, right? Yes. But that, that's, that's applying a principle, right? You don't know that that principle works out until you did. So it does require, um, I want to say a leap of faith. That's not quite the right word because we both have, we both have a sound theory and then it's buttressed with facts, right? And evidence. So if you engage seriously with those things, that social vision applied consistently works in many other elements that we can look to. Uh, slavery, civil rights, uh, when it comes to the English abolishing the corn laws or the dropping of trade tariffs uh, in the 19th century or um, the resistance to empire um, in, in the 19th century or the American Revolution and the ideas articulated then. Each one of those examples were all, we didn't know what was going to happen if we broke away from the British, but we did because we were basing our principles on, on a sound theory buttressed by facts and then said the the risks are worth the the potential outcome um, by and, and and that's that's ultimately all human decision making has to be made on that basis right there's no way to know for certain anything's going to result the way you think it will um, it, it has to be down to those things and then a, and a risk tolerance so things have to be uncomfortable enough to actually want a future another way to think about it uh, this is Mises's human action theorem. Uh, in order for someone to act, this is from a school of uh, uh, economic thought called praxeology. Basically, it was the science of action. Prax is the Latin word for action. So the science of action says that in order for someone to commit action, right, first thing, they have to have a state of discomfort. Something has to be wrong. Something has to be a, sol a, a solvable problem. Second, they have to have a vision for a better state, uh, an idea about how the world could be better, made better. And then third, they, uh, they implement action or a means to then accomplish that end. And then it's all up to probability of whether or not it actually works or not, right? We don't live in a deterministic world. We live in a probabilistic world. So they then do that action and then it fails. 
and their vision is challenged or it succeeds and their vision is confirmed. That's all human action. So for, for anybody, uh, the, the basic formula is I have a problem, I have a vision of a better state, and then I go out and solve that. That's true for every domain, right? So regulation. Right now we have this huge problem where all these states have blown up certifications. Poor people can't work because they can't get certified. Uh, we've gone from about 12 to 20 professions being certified in the 1960s to tens of thousands of professions being <laughs> certified today. Uh, the amount of paperwork and fees and all the things that go with that, a lot of this is cartelizing all these industries, all these problems. So there's, there's a point, point of pain. In order to change that law, uh, many groups have documented the pain it caused, proposed a legislative solution, a vision of a better state, and then advocated that using the political process, either by primarying people, challenging people in general elections, uh, working under the dome, that's a shorthand for capital buildings, um, and then celebrating the win, casting this future state, and then documenting how you know people are made better off when you reduce the barriers that keep them from being able to be employed. Um, a great example, one of, the, one of the common ones, and obviously it starts with the most compelling case with the most compelling victim, is uh, African hair braiding, right? You have uh, a tradition uh, in, that goes way, way back uh, for the African-American community in hair braiding, and then all of a sudden cosmetologists say, no, 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 that's our grift. You can't, you can't do hair braiding. You got to get this special certification. And they're like, what the heck? I can, I can do it for free, but I can't do it if I charge, if, if, I, if I get paid, if I get compensated for it. This is insane. I'm not dyeing someone's hair. I'm not working with chemicals by someone's eyes. All I'm doing is that. So they always sell these certification regimes under safety. So obviously there wasn't a safety concern, obviously. So that's like the low hanging fruit. The high hanging fruit is like, how do we get to the place where the, the American Medical Association doesn't have a monopoly on what's called, considered a doctor, right? Because once you have a monopoly, you have an incentive to abuse that monopoly in order to create consensus of thought. We know this is true since COVID. Uh, there's all kinds of bad incentives to that monopoly of, uh, of the American Medical Association. Yeah, it's really interesting. And especially since COVID, I feel like, like you talk about risk tolerance and you have to have this ability to take a chance on something not working out. And I feel like since COVID, our risk tolerance as a, individuals, some of us, and, and, but collectively as a society has gone way down. You know, anything that is in any way dangerous is sort of too dangerous, almost by default. It's like binary. There's no, there's no real gradient there anymore. anymore. At least it seems like it's consolidating in that direction. And I want to, I want to frame this in the context of uh, what we're going through right now, experiencing the, these banking crises, you know, there's this idea of taking risk financially. And then if that risk doesn't pay off, but you get bailed out by the government, it creates what's called a moral hazard. And you, you, we're hearing this word thrown around a lot. Can you kind of define like what a moral hazard is and how it manifests itself in this realm and perhaps others? Yeah. So one of the key insights of economics is that people respond to incentives. Right? So if the price of something goes down, you're more likely to buy it, right? If you need it, right? Sure. Uh, the uh, price of something goes up, you respond to that incentive by holding off consumption, right? Uh, depending on your values, your time preference, things like that. So moral hazard is just applying that same idea to the perverse incentives that a bailout creates, right? Once you've bailed something out, you've now created the incentive for people to be reckless in the sense that they're going to guess they're going to get bailed out. This goes all the way back to the 1990s when uh, the Federal Reserve bailed out the peso and bailed out the savings and loans in the 1980s uh, that then created the incentive that, okay, if 
if the, the, the Fed is the lender of last resort, it was meant to cover banks so that they don't close from bank runs. But then it's going to be, well, actually, if you just malinvest, they'll also bail you out. And now to the point where we've, uh, we've embodied the institution of bailouts into what's called systemic risk. Uh, and anytime something has systemic risk, uh, they automatically get bailed out. And this is another cartelizing force. It pushes all banks to either be big, huge, supermassive banks or small banks, nothing in between. Um, and interestingly, there was a bunch of articles that came out that criticized the repeals of certain factors of Dodd-Frank uh, for uh, the current crisis, right? Even though a lot of medium-sized banks would have totally gone out of business without those repeals, completely without looking at the trade-offs. Well, and it was, I, I listened to um, the debate between Vivek Ramaswamy, presidential candidate, and David Sachs, two Republicans talking, taking opposite sides on bailing out uh, depositors on the SVB crisis. Um, and this was... Vivek's, uh, Vivek's, uh, de- like one of his main points was similar to what you were saying about the response to incentives where right now, if we just choose to like disobey FDIC insurance, the limits that were put on there, and it's just that we're just going to bail everybody out regardless of what their limit was. Well, now you're creating this new perverse incentive that just comes out of just being like, okay, now we put it to a million dollars and we're going to go back retrospectively and bail everybody out. That just tells everybody is like, well, the government's just going to come in anyways next time, even after, even if we need to be bailed out above a million dollars next time, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it creates these new, the spiraling perverse incentives that just keep continuing onward. Right. What isn't clear about, about that it, for a lot of people and why there isn't a good response to this is, is the lack of clarity about the future state that would be possible if we didn't have these institutions doing this thing. And that is, in the case of SVB, is it would be up to the venture capitalists who are funding these businesses to put up more capital in order so they can make payroll. But what happens is you have all the people who benefit from the bailout saying, well, if we don't do this, then everything's going to fall apart and all these people are going to lose their jobs and all that kind of stuff, rather than saying it is our responsibility to make sure that these institutions who have good businesses that are sound businesses continue to get the funding they need and capital they need. In fact, it's an opportunity for other people to get, invest capital in these businesses and help them along if, if they have that. The problem is, and this is another problem of centralization, because we have the Fed, we have a singular price of interest. The singular price of interest gives everyone the exact same incentives to exa- behave exactly the same way. And what happened during low interest rates? Everyone bought bonds and now the interest rates are high. Those bonds aren't worth as much. So now they're like, well, we don't have the assets to cover our bases. And, and, and it, that's what happened at SVB, right? right? Well, As they invested a bunch, among other things, they invested a bunch of money into these bonds paying a low interest rate when that was uh, the market rate. And then the interest rates went up dramatically because the Fed raised them. And then when they came into a, you know, a crunch and they needed cash, they went to sell these bonds and they realized, oh, they're not worth nearly what they were on the books in the market at this point in time. My understanding, people keep saying that they were buying these T-bonds, but my understanding is they had $80 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Um, like I keep seeing reporting, but when I was actually looking at it, it was mortgage-backed securities. I, mm-hmm. I just I should maybe double check that I and correct that. I believe that they were bonds, but there, there could be. I think there could it's be both. Yeah, it's might have been a combination. A, yeah. It's a very large bank. I mean, yeah. in terms yeah. of numbers. Yeah, yeah, we are talking. It was like two hundred and eighty billion dollars, right? Right. right. So, like but that. the whole point being, even in that circumstance, those mortgages are worth less because the higher interest rates means the payments are going to be harder, and there's going to be more failures, and there's they're more risky. Additionally to that, there's um. It, the whole point that I was trying to get to was that the vision itself is that there shouldn't be a singular bond, right? It should be mini bonds, right? It should be allowed for people to say, I'm going to hold in Bitcoin and gold. I'm going to hold in these other things in order to get the future and the asset valuation of those things going forward. 
rather than an arbitrary thing of completely made up by the government that is just a piece of paper saying, I will tax the taxpayer on your behalf to pay this off in the future date. That is not an actual security. That is just a government promise, right? And if you're, if you're a medallion holder of taxis, how does it feel to have that government pro, you know, promise when Uber comes in? Right. The government arbitrarily just can just do that. Right. That is that's the nature of it. So that's why we shouldn't have those institutions. We shouldn't have tax medallions. We shouldn't have treasury bonds. What we should have are market based you know, market based solutions, market based mechanisms and institutions that allow people to take real things and, and, and base them on actual assets to then invest in and move throughout the money in order to build the loanable savings market so we can have capital investment so that we can grow the economy. That is a much better vision because it roots the signaling, the price mechanism signal that we talked about that one episode for like 20 minutes, uh, that that signal then goes from the origin point, the extraction of those industries and the making of those products to the actual person saving or spending or doing that thing. That way you actually are dealing in real goods so you don't malinvest, make miscalculations based upon a distorted signal. Yeah. And so uh, it brings me back to that point that you made, I think the last episode talking about um, the Keynesian worldview says that consumption is the primary driver of the economy, but you can't consume things without things first being produced, mm. uh, right? It's mm-hmm. sort of the, you know, in essence, what you said. And so the Austrian or the al- the alternative to the Keynesian approach is that production is the primary driver of economic growth, right? right. The distinguishment is something called Say's Law, which is that you have to produce something before you can consume it, right? Which makes perfect rational sense. <laughs> so how could... How could Keynesian economists, how could this worldview that is so upside down be the primary economic worldview at the, the upper echelons of the Fed and, and in government today? How is that possible? The court priest. That's how. What's that? Mean? Right. And the court priest was an analogy by Murray Rothbard that says that a lot of intelligentsia is actually a just a post de facto justification of the preferred government policies that were already preferred. Can right. you say that in layman's terms? Yeah. So like <laughs> I, I, rather than generating a hypothesis and then experimenting with it, what I do is I look to what the needs are of policymakers and then I generate a theory for those needs and then I go find the evidence for it. Uh, and that's, um, and, and, and to be frank, Keynes was responding to the Great Depression and he's saying this worldwide depression, how do we solve this problem? Well, people aren't consuming. People are saving a lot because they're afraid of the future. So how do we get them to consume? Well, we got to have policies to get them to consume to start up the engine of the economy. There's a sensibility to that. Um, the question, the problem is, is that the entire problem was solved in the first, was created in the first place by the actions of the Fed uh, and by the actions of the interest rate policy through the 1920s that created 1929 that then created the Great Depression. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And a lot of these ideas, like they start to circulate around like a mind virus where you have um, certain incentives that are being signaled by the Fed. You also have these big international conglomerates that are doing things like uh, ESGs, environmental social governance uh, accreditation and DEI programs. And all of these things are like Trojan horses that just creep in like a social contagion that ends up like incentivizing malinvestment. And then when actual problems occur, everybody's just like, uh, who, who said the quote, uh, so some big investor always said a quote that, um, when the, when like the tide goes out, you start to realize who's swimming without their shorts on kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing all that malinvestment just kind of coming into light right now in front of us of who fell for those incentives or who over, over invested in this thing when they should have done that thing. And, and who was being too greedy, all of these things start to kind of, we, we're beginning to shed light on it and we have to like purge this malinvestment out of our system. That's a great point. And, and one of the, one of the great case examples from the 2007 financial crisis was BB&T. 
right? It was a bank um, run by uh, John Allison. He'd been running the bank for 50 years or something like that. Um, old school bank actually kept two different sets of books, one that complied with the government actuary standards and then their own in order to like have good actuary standards. So when the financial crisis happened uh, and they generated and created TARP, the Trouble Asset Relief Program, uh, to bail out all the banks and bail out the financial system, they were like, well, we don't need it. So don't, don't give it to us. And like, no, you have to, you have to take it. And there's why? Well, because we don't want the signal that there are some banks that aren't, that don't have problems. And they then, want the signal to be that all the banks are having problems. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you got to read his book, The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure. If it's not on Liberty Portal, we should have it on there. We will make sure it's on LibertyPortal.com. Because yeah, it, is, it is a fantastic book. Um, it definitely dives into the Austrian business cycle theory. It touches on that. talks about other problems such as accounting that were, that were a contributing factor, problems that have not been solved uh, since the last financial crisis. And additionally to that, that even the good actors in this space get wrapped in with the bad actors uh, because they, they can't have, they can't, allow the demonstration that banking and finance can be done responsibly because the whole goal is to pump the system as much as possible with consumption. Uh, and, and once again, that goes all the way back to Keynes. So it's almost as if these bank crashes are a benefit. I won't go, I won't go so far as to say that they're manufactured, but that they are a benefit to pumping the system because when they crash, they have to be bailed out. Mm-hmm. And so the government or the Fed rushes in with all the, you know, these different loans and, and bailouts and things and and elevates the banking system again, continuing this sort of what seems like a Ponzi scheme, but on the grandest scale possible. Right? Or, or like a like a binge party, right? So a great analogy is you're partying, you're having a great time with your friends, you, you spike the, the Kool-Aid, everyone, you know, is having an even better time. With, and, with alcohol, not with poison. This, yeah, oh yeah, right? this isn't like a Branch Davidian thing. Uh, <laughs> no, you spike the Kool-Aid with some alcohol, everyone's having even a better time. And then you just keep going. And before you know it, you're taking shots and, and doing jello, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, everyone's hung over. So you're like, no, wait. I got something better. So then you break out the cocaine and everyone's doing cocaine. The party keeps going. And then you're like, oh man, well, I can go any better. Here's some other drugs. And then people are doing that. Next thing you know, the question is, is when do you get to the place where you're doing fentanyl? Right. Right. (laughs) Then that's, and that's that's just to avoid the hangover. Yeah. Right. right? Just to avoid things falling apart. And and it's important to to, to make the point again, that the, that the falling apart is the important thing. Cause that's when we reconcile with reality. That's where we, that's where we find out who's swimming without the shorts on. <laughs> right. Well, and it looks like speaking of that, that SVB was heavily invested in a lot of S, um, ESG products um, that they had contributed to, you know, uh, donated like I think tens of millions of dollars. I don't have it in front of me, Kyle, maybe you can look it up, but to some of these various, you know, different sort of woke organizations or, you know, invested in these different products. Well, something I did just pull up and I'll throw it on here for now, um, is Larry Fink. He always does his quarterly, uh, letter for the S and P. He is now beginning to shy away from ESGs in the aftermath of this, which is interesting because he's very much like the orchestrator of the whole ESG movement. And Larry Fink is the, is the CEO of BlackRock, right? Mm. Which is the largest, um, asset holder in the world. Yeah. Correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. They, they own, it's like, like trillions yeah, of dollars under crazy, management. Crazy amount. Yeah. It's, it's like $10 trillion. I think that's probably, that's a, that was during the bull run. It was, it was 10 trillion, but now it's probably less because everything's gone down. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is interesting to see that now he's taking a much more, uh, he's seeing the political backlash that came from the anti ESG movement that started to creep into the lexicon over the last two years probably well and Mm -hmm. so the unfortunate side effect then of and i know that 
it's not a bailout of SVB's investors or management, right? I mean, it's been made very clear throughout this process of what's gone on in the last week since we last spoke that this is bailing out the depositors. But still, by ensuring all of these companies that have placed their trust, their money and their deposits beyond the insured amount via FDIC, allowing them to be protected is allowing them the moral hazard of continuing to invest with banks that manage money irresponsibly. Therefore, even if this bank fails, it doesn't necessarily remove the moral hazard of other banks in the future from acting irresponsibly. Right. Well, but, and but, that's the thing is like, maybe I'm a dick for saying this, but I, I view any, any transaction, any, anything that you do with your money, you are making some sort of an investment decision and you are making, you, you have to make some sort of risk calculus on that. Giving your money to a bank to loan out is, you know, supposed to be seen as a low risk, like investment. Like that's really kind of what it is like these banks are just hedge funds with with lower risk uh um with lower risk until lately now they seem to be a bit <laughs> higher risk uh but like every every single decision that you are making with what you do, with, with what you do with your money should be seen as an investment decision where you could lose everything and that's just something when you're looking at banks that's another thing to always have in the back of your mind like they might screw around with your money well the problem here though is that by that calculus, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but we've got these um, systemically important banks. Is that what they're called? SIBs, right? You've got like the, basically the big four. The big four. Right? And by taking that approach, necessarily smaller banks are going to have smaller pools of, of capital. They're going to be more reliant on depositors and less, um, have less availability of this cheap money from the Fed. The big four are like the safest place to keep your money. So by that calculus, everyone... And, and people are still doing this in spite of, you know, the, the bank run supposedly being stopped by bailing out depositors as, at, at SVB. People are still pulling their money out of small regional banks, sucking it up, centralizing it with these big four banks and, and others around the world. We're watching a nationalization of the banking industry, like even even more so than it already was, right? Well, it wasn't exactly. like last time when Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers got bailed out that all the people who ran those organizations just went and flipped burgers afterwards. Right. It's, 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 it's ridiculous to think that the head, the managers are being, not being bailed out. Well, come on. Right. Right. They're not right. going to just disappear. They're, they're, well, they're going to go be like, oh, I was in charge of SVB. And they're like, oh, that was an interesting part of your it resume. Was, it was well, well, and that's the thing with the SVB stuff. All, everybody on the board last month, all were selling off millions of dollars worth of shares in SVB. Mm-hmm. And then they went on TV and were like, everything's going great. And then it was like a week later, everything collapsed. And then they're like, mm-hmm. we don't know what happened. It came out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah right. Well, and it was the chief administrative officer for SVB was uh, CIO or some C-suite executive at uh, Lehman Brothers, I yeah. believe, in 07. I think risk management. Well, he left in 07. I, I think risk- it was like head of risk management yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, I it's like, <laughs> this is such a... <laughs> risk this is such a cesspool. Oh, I can double check that, but it's it really is. Oh, you're killing me. It's like, I mean, <laughs> these people are smart. We know they're smart to some extent. They have to be intelligent to get to where they are, but it's like... If you're smart and you're able to be the head of risk management at Lehman Brothers and then move to another bank that fails, it then starts to imply some malice. <laughs> oh yeah, right? I, well, it's not. It's I, not, I, I do love love like, that his name. His name is Gentile. Gentile. His name is his name is Gentile. You can only imply ignorance for so long when you see track records. Like yeah, that. yeah, he was the CFO of Lehman Brothers. Wow, Joseph Gentile. Wow. So his. That demonstrates that what counts in the system is not your ability to provide value to your customers. What counts is who you know and the cronyism within the system. Now, that that persists no matter what, because that's human nature. The question is, do you have measures of accountability 
to actually create that. And on the market process, I would, I would guess, is a much better measure of accountability than asking the government to regulate it, right? Because this guy's, if this guy were, if he didn't have the implicit guarantee of a government bailout, he would have a lot harder time getting his next job. Uh, but because like, no, I don't know, a lot of people over at the Treasury Department, don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the, it's sort of the regulatory capture, but in a, in a different industry, right? It's mm-hmm. instead of it being that the EPA is regulating their friends that spill chemicals from on occasion or the FDA regulating their friends in pharmaceuticals and, you know, careers bouncing back and forth between the two. It's, you know, I mean, we know that there is this, uh, career pathway between mm-hmm. the fed and, and various big banks. I mean, wasn't Janet Yellen at Goldman Sachs? Yeah. And remember yeah. that last time, last financial crisis, the guy who was the treasury secretary was a former Lehman Brothers, you know, executive. Um, and this, this whole system does not need to be. We take it as for granted that this is how it is, but it does not have to be this way. We can make other choices. We can organize differently. We take the risks that go with that, but it would be a system of less cronyism, less, you know, more equal rights, uh, more competition and openness, and less of this incestuous milieu that we live in. Well, so I, I, that's an interesting segue to the how can we change it kind of conversation. Mm. Um, and Kyle, I'd actually like to like to query you on this because I know you're our resident crypto degen. <laughs> crypto, the cryptocurrency space blew up sort of with the promise that it was, you know, this new era of finance that's decentralized that removes people from the central banking system hedge hedge against inflation gold 2.0 there were all these narratives surrounding bitcoin and a lot of the other projects it obviously maybe it grew too fast maybe it was itself its growth was a product of this inflationary environment with a lot of this imaginary money especially right around covid going into some of these risky investments or gambles on some of these different projects where where is crypto now? You know, especially since the crash, which does sort of looking back in hindsight seem to be sort of maybe the the first indicator of a of a major kind of cascading effect that is right now, you know, uh, at this point where we're at with SVB with the banks starting to be affected. Where, where what do you see going on in the in the crypto space? It is going to be interesting to see how everyone kind of responds to it, like. Because we are seeing fleeing capital happen right now, and a lot of people are fleeing into the big four, as we talked about. But we also did see a lot of movement into Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, in the aftermath of all this. Like I think Bitcoin was up like fifteen percent on on the day of all this crashing was happening. Um, I mean, I'm always going to be a, like have a crypto bias. It's just a very safe place where I think it is to to store money right now because nobody can control it. There's no third parties that are getting in your way. Um, it, you can move it on weekends. <laughs> you can you know you can move it across borders, no problem. Um, I, I think that's where that's going to be one of the directions that the world starts to move towards. Uh, a lot of the big concerns right now, I think, are in the stablecoin space. Right now, in the aftermath of the SVB collapse, uh, Circle, who is the who's owns uh, USDC, um, there's two major stablecoins, Tether and USDC. USDC is much more like the government regulated, government friendly coin. Um, they they were they were working with six six different banks, and one of them was SVB. So all they of, also have funds with Signature Bank in New York. I think so. Which yeah. also collapsed. Or yeah. Was so bailed out. so what we ended up seeing was these stablecoins 
stable coins, supposed to be stable at a dollar, pegged to the dollar, is you ended up seeing everybody fleeing from USDC to Tether. And Tether went up to like a dollar ten, and USDC went down to like 85 cents for a few days. Um, and, and I think one of the biggest problems that people in the crypto space have to kind of contend with is these fiat backed stable coins, because ultimately the dollars that those are pegged to are sitting in banks. <laughs> so we're supposed to, the whole crypto space is supposed to get away from the banks and we're supposed to live bankless, but you have uh, all these tokens existing on like the Ethereum chain and stuff like that, that are being backed by dollars sitting in banks. And that's where people are kind of like in the bear market. They, they, they leave their cash, Right. So I, I think that the crypto space has to contend with that stuff. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin doesn't have to deal with those problems. Ethereum doesn't have to deal with those problems. Um, Do they're, they not? they're still safe. Why? Well, I mean, Bitcoin is backed by miners, right? Um, Ethereum is backed by stakers. Uh, that's what that's where their value comes from. That's where the verification of the network exists. So like if, if you're just on a wallet, you have money on a Bitcoin wallet, you can still move things no problem as long as the miners are still going on the network. Everything's as long still as there's fine. liquidity, as long as you can get your Bitcoin out to, to I mean, dollars, right? if you're concerned with getting into fiat, then yeah, then you need some sort of a, a choke point to be able to do that. That's where a lot of people in the crypto space are right now are kind of joking and memeing about Operation Choke Point. Uh, that's what they're calling it because uh, there was kind of an attack on Signature Bank uh, um, uh, Frank Dodd Frank, I think is a member of signature bank. And he said that Barney they're, Frank or Bar Barney sorry, Frank. Yeah. Dodd, yeah. Dodd, Dodd is another guy. Chris Dodd, <laughs> Chris Dodd, Dodd Barney, Frank. Barney Frank. Yeah. Um, Barney Frank, former senators. Yeah. Barney Frank, he said something along the lines of, um, there was no real, oh man, I, I'm going to butcher this quote. I, I should find the quote where he said something along the lines of like, there was no real reason for them to come after us. I think they came after us because we were a pro crypto bank. Mm. <laughs> he said something like that. Mm. And, uh, which is interesting. Um, well, and we've also got, I think pretty recent news that the CBDC is supposed Central to start bank digital rolling currency. out in July. I think I well, don't they, have a they, headline in front of They me. have like a project they're working on to create a model for one but it, they don't it, actually have it right it, they it, actually yeah if i was to put my conspiracy hat on right now what i think is happening right now is that there's a civil war going on between the fed boys and the davos boys and the fed boys still want to strengthen the dollar by continuing to increase interest rates and the davos boys who i think are intellect who, who have intellectually captured the biden administration are very much trying to collapse the dollar and i think a lot of our geopolitics is resolving around that they're very much trying to collapse the dollar so that there is a rescue mechanism that is uh, universal basic income and central bank digital currencies. Something I think that, driven. I, th I think that there is a there is an actual kind of strategic plan in place like that. That takes place at the global like IMF level or world yeah. bank level. Oh, it's yeah. on recording now. So if you're wrong. We we'll come know. Back to it in a couple we'll years. know. Yeah, let's come back in a decade and let's see where this goes right now. God, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> but but and when that happens, that's where the big deal. That's where the real fight, I think, is something like uh, you know centralized technocracy and like cryptographic individualism. I think that's where like the fight of the new era is. Those are a lot of big words there. Um, Can you define those? Uh, centralized technoc technocracy. I think that there is a very much a plan of like global elites trying to centralize everything in the Western empire across Europe, you know, like the whole Anglosphere. Uh, and, and they want to kind of bring everybody together and homogenize everything and kind of their technocratic scientific elite controlling everything. 
And then what I mean by individual, um, individualistic or cryptographic individualism, I mean that there's going to be something like uh, these rebellion zones of like network states kind of around the world that are much more in the crypto sphere. And then you're also going to have like China and Russia as an Eastern bloc. I think those are going to be like the three polarities of the world that we see. When you say network state, that's different from a nation state, sort of more of a digital. Uh, I, I'm stealing that term from uh, Bology. I, I recently read his book and I really like his concept. Uh, there, there's a, his He's book is brilliant. his book is. Um, uh, uh, the network state, the network state, how to build a nation. And he, he lays out kind of a, a macro thesis of where he sees the world going. Um, and I think that we're beginning to see these network states pop up in places like El Salvador, places like Dubai, places like Singapore. Um, we're seeing more and more of these just kind of generally pop up around the world. And I think that's where this century is moving. You know, and this, this is stuff that takes place over decades. It's not like the next election election is going to change everything. You know, like these are just macro trends of where the world is moving. Yeah. I think it's, um, in the context of this conversation, there's this concept of becoming your own central bank. And I think that's really fascinating because, and I think crypto is probably a component of that, right? It's where, a variable where, right? where yeah. people are trying to figure out how, how do I become less dependent on the system in, in general, in all the ways that it might control your life in some way, the grid as it's generally known, right? But within banking specifically, the concept of being your own central bank just means what getting out of fiat currency, getting out of storing your money in dollars where your value, which really is the distillation of your time and your life force you know, preserved, uh, is being slowly in a way by inflation and, and taxation and all these things. I mean, what are some of the other aspects of that we've got precious metals, right? If you wanted to, and obviously this is not investment advice by any stretch, but just kind of an exploration. If you wanted to get out of storing your money in dollars in a bank where it might be at risk, you could go into crypto. You could you could go into precious metals. What do you guys think about like that side of? Yeah, things? you could also go into real estate. You could go into stocks. Like there's these are all different places where you can put your money if you're wanting to be uh, get out of cash, right? Sure. They all have risk. Um, they all have risk. risk, and you got to pay taxes on them all. That's the real trick, right? I mean, you can yeah. even if you even if you buy Bitcoin or buy gold and then you use it to trade, you are taxably liable for the value of when you bought it, into the difference of the value of when you and when you yeah. traded it. And that's that's the core problem. In order to get actual monetary denationalization, we we need to effectively eliminate capital gains taxes on those assets. Well, especially gold and silver, right? Because those should be they are constitutionally considered legal tender, are they not? No. Well, <laughs> are they not? The constitution is just a piece extra of paper. Constitutional <laughs> republic, sir. Oh, oh I'm aware. I'm yeah. well aware. <laughs> Something being in the constitution does not. I mean, also the war powers are in Congress, but we haven't declared a war since. Well, right, but World if, war II. if we decided to follow the rules that we seem to have set <laughs> for this country to be operated, yeah, gold and silver should be legal tender. They shouldn't be taxable, right? Well, I mean, that's one of those tricky to transact things, right? in because the. Yes, I, I think I think that's I, I wish that were true, uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> uh, since 1913, we've had a precedent of the monopoly of the dollar, and uh, or that's considered the the actual fe the Federal Reserve note is considered what is the legal tender in the country. So you'd have to, in order to exist in the current judicial system, that would not take friendly your constitutional argument, um, and would say that's a bunch of right wing conspiracy theory. Uh, that that therefore. 
we have to change the laws, right? And I think I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's an actual appetite for that. Uh, th- this um, is one of my problems with conservatives is that they always think that the, this piece of paper is going to save them. Nobody's cared about the Constitution in over a century. <laughs> like at the end of the day, nothing nothing about our country is still following the Constitution. It's it's useful as a talking point and sometimes in the Supreme Court, but at the end of the day, nobody actually cares. Everybody just wants their team to win. And and they will violate the Constitution wherever they wherever they are willing to, it, like wherever it's convenient. For yeah, them. and yeah. and it, and you know the Republicans tend to be the ones that are always championing. Let's use the Constitution. They will violate it also. <laughs> like yeah. the, well, well, some will. And so like the there's a there's an ought versus is problem here, right? So ought the Constitution be the basis of our governments? Yes, it would be great. Is it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been for a long time. Right. And at some point, you ask yourself, when are we no longer a republic? A nation ruled by laws. That's what the definition of republic. And when are we an empire? What if we just cross that Rubicon? That's an analogy to Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon to conquer Rome and gone over that edge and said, you know, this piece of paper just isn't really worth following anymore. What, when did we do it? When do we actually? I, I think it was a century ago. Yeah. When, yeah. When, when does the fact that that happened come to the point in our culture that no one expects it to run on a constitution anymore? Because then, then you're effectively, you've, you've given up on that project. And the American projects is over. Well, I think in a lot of senses, we have crossed that Rubicon. And I mean, to to quote that sort of analogy further, are we experiencing the decline of of our empire at this point in time? I think we're transitioning in, 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 into something. And it, it, it I don't think people realize that the when empires and when the like the logic of violence shifts in different uh, throughout history. I, I don't think people realize or even appreciate generally how long it takes. Like um, in the book, The Sovereign Individual, which is a, another excellent book that I recommend anyone read. Um, he, he talks about, this book's written in the 90s, but he talks about how when the Roman Empire was falling, you still had people across the empire like for like 200 years kind of like LARPing as if the Roman Empire was still around <laughs> and the Roman Empire was like gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. So just one day someone said, hey, wait, we're all ruled by Visigoths. And everyone was like, oh, yeah. yeah, we're like, oh, yeah. That, that's what we're doing Are now. Are we still Roman? Like, yeah. You know? yeah. And that was 200 years later, <laughs> yeah. right? Like a, a substantial amount of time. Multiple generations went by before people really noticed that the Roman Empire wasn't an empire. Uh, it's interesting. If you look at the British Empire, there was a more clear like World War II happened and then it was something else afterwards. Mm. But I mean, there was a devolution that was happening before that, that really led up to that. It's kind of a breaking point, straw on the camel's back sort of thing. So, um, will it be faster for us? Probably, uh, information flows are different, you know, uh, decentralized information flows make things way different. Um, so I think, I think the world hegemony is probably, uh, uh, everyone recognizes that the, the United States cannot be the global hegemon forever. Even the neocons in their, in their work. Uh, as they articulate it, is like, we have this time of the American century. How do we shape things so that the world's a better place at the end of it from where it started at the beginning, right? And their entire justification for everything they've done, the gallons and gallons, the oceans of blood spilt um, is that, well, it is making things better in the long run. That's their whole claim. So it, it even they say it's going to end eventually. So what does that world look like afterwards? What's a multipolar world of not just the dollar, and not just global, you know, American military dominance, but a multipolar world of many different competing systems of money. And hopefully one of those is non-state money, uh, because that would be the most accountable to consumers and less accountable to bureaucratic elites who are running that thing. I'm, I have no more faith in BRICS than I do in the U.S. dollar. I have no more faith in the ruble or the 
you know, whatever, any, any currency other than that, if it's run by a government, you should absolutely take it with a very large grain of salt. Well, and this is the big thing kind of going along that sovereign individual thesis. The whole point of that thesis is that the logic of violence of how we organize governments and society drastically changes with new technology because the old system is not able to govern in the same way anymore. And I think things like cryptocurrency are an example of this, of like they can no longer control their monopoly on currency. Um, there now becomes a competitive factor that it becomes just increasingly difficult for them to enforce. And in the transitionary period, there's going to be a lot of blood and problems and, and stuff that will happen. But this, and, and you know, and it's not just cryptocurrency, just like the internet, like there's no longer this control mechanism over speech in the same way that it was like back in the day, they were able to control three channels that were how you got your news. Now you can go to anywhere across the world and you can use a VPN to pretend you're in another country and all these things. They can no longer enforce those things as a effectively as they otherwise would have been able to. And it's all because just techno technological change changes the logic that they have on how they, on how they commit violence because they are a monopoly of violence. And that book described. is really great about that. I mean, it actually articulates that the logic of violence itself is what determines the ethics of a society yes. and its mode of production. So um, the big state democratic socialism we have today, the thesis of the book is that one of the, one of the reasons why we have that isn't, because that's just like the, it, the, so the progressive vision is that we realized something about the free market and then we implemented, you know, all of the FDA and all these, you know, organizations, the Department of Labor, all these institutions and bureaucracies in order to control capitalism so that we could then enter the new millennium where social democracy will take over the world and everything will be great. Right. And their argument is like, no, 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 no. What happened was, is we created factories. And if you have factories, you have all the production in one place and it's easy to monopolize over that and extract resources from the factory because it's locked into a place. But what happens when factories are no longer the dominant way of producing things? Mm. That more money can be made in decentralized ways of providing services decentralized, of providing even manufacturing decentralized. You look at 3D printing and other phenomena that could change the way that that works. And, and when you look at it on a global scale, then you have the competition of domain where you can't control the flow of money or the flow of goods and services as easily once you have the internet. So with that, that's one of the reasons we saw this, this, this shrinking of social democracy as a powerful force because it depends on using the production capability of factories as a tax cow, mm. right? Of just harvesting from that thing. And so the logic of social democracy is ending. And what is the thing we're going to move to? And what they predict is, you know, I, I, it's an interesting vision of what they predict. And it might be true, might not be true, but their, their analytical tool, they call it megapolitics, yeah. is very interesting. And it definitely, is, it's, a, it's a great book worth reading. Sovereign Individual. Mm -hmm. Sovereign Individual. Fantastic. I want to read it. I will make sure it's in the show notes as well if you'd like to check it out. Um, yeah, I find it really fascinating, the time that we are in historically. I mean, I'm sure every generation thinks like, oh, we live in the most interesting time to be alive. But I honestly think that we live in the most <laughs> well, interesting I, well, time and to be I, alive. I think, I think the next generations are also going to be the most, I think we're just getting more and more interesting. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> right? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially when we look at technology and the different things that that's going to result in. I mean, if we solve aging, for example, imagine for a moment, if in the next 10 years we solve aging, you're going to be the age you are, or maybe 10 years older for a hundred years. So I'm going to hit my peak and then I'm going to just never age. Yeah. From right. Right. So imagine if that were to happen <laughs> biomedically. Right. And then you have children that grow up and they're locked into their twenties at health of the twenties for the rest of their life and for a hundred years or 200 years or whatever, that would change everything. Right? I, I, it would change the problem of birth rates. It would change everything else. Like the, 
or, or other kind of biomedifications, right? That would be different about what change would be human interfacing lot, with computers. Well, like that. a lot of people might say that's that's a bad thing, right? Because the world has too many people on it. Oh, well, that's just false. I, <laughs> I, 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 I remember I remember a long time ago listening to an interview with a Vitalik Buterin. He's the founder of Ethereum. And they were just talking about other random things, other technologies. And I remember him saying that he believes that half of the people on Earth will live to the year 3000. I was like, what? <laughs> like, you are very bullish on technology. <laughs> like, you are very, I, I, at first, I was like 2300. I was like, okay. And, but then I was like, wait, no, 3000? Th- <laughs> That's 900 years. <laughs> like, how? See, is that even. That's very bullish on technology. Yeah, is yeah, that yeah, even desirable, bullish. though? I think it's a valid question that we should be asking ourselves yeah. because there is this idea, you know, this like transhumanist, posthumanist uh, paradigm that is sort of coming about, you know, the. Uh, Noah Yuval Hararis of the world yeah. are kind of pushing this thing where it's like, you know, eventually we're just going to be, we're going to be able to move our brain into a, an infinite machine body or some sort of digital entity and we can exist forever. But like, do you want that? That's a, like, at like, that point we're creating a new species. Like, well, yeah. And I mean, just like, like just, different just, you know, point. spiritually, it's like no, no matter I guess if you're an atheist, maybe it doesn't it, it doesn't ring as true to like want to ascend from this plane. Like you are you in a strange way. If I you just I, turn into dust, if you go into nothingness after leaving this planet, like w- wouldn't you just maybe want to stay here instead? In a, in a strange way, I think that this is the atheist trying to ascend from this plane. Oh, <laughs> is that they're like this is their religion, right? They call it the rapture of the nerds. Yeah, <laughs> which is a great turn of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But that's what it is, right? It's like you're uploading your body into like this new plane of existence, which is like the cybernetic, you know. Uh, I heard. I heard you're, a really you're interesting. You're becoming something new. You're becoming. I heard a really interesting take. Uh, you know, and, and it sort of definitely pits the sort of like the technocracy mm-hmm. um, as sort of this satanic force on Earth versus sort of like you know the heavenly like uh, godly force of good. And uh, someone put it really interestingly over dinner once. Uh, she was like, you know, if you had spent your entire life like worshiping Satan and you knew that at the end of your life you were going to go to hell, wouldn't you want to stay on Earth forever? Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, you know, maybe I would. <laughs> it's kind of a fair point. Yeah. The, the trick is, is, is that there's a golden narrow fallacy in that too, right? Where what's old is good, right? What we had was good. Uh, and that is just always a perspective that a generation has a given time when they are in a situation where they're dealing with a more complex world that is not, doesn't look like them anymore, right? So there's uh, this perennial issue of, you know, folks feel like a stranger in their own country. That's because countries change and evolve. Mm-hmm. Right. And every generation looks at the next generation and says, oh, they're weak and unmotivated and, you know, unintelligent and all these yeah, other except things. Now it's true, though. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've met <laughs> some of you, Gen Z. I, I, no. I've met some Gen Zers that I'm just like, wow, yeah. the millennials, the millennials got screwed. The Gen Zers are crazy <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, because they've grown up with a lot of this new technology where it's like, you know, they they were they had a smartphone when they were five years old and they're like already really well connected and you know there's negatives like there's trade-offs and all these things sure. right? right but they are so much more advanced in, in i think where the world is going and like gen xers and millennials we were in this awkward transition period where we're still kind of like boomers in a sense when it comes to technology but some of us are kind of like on board with the, the gen z but we're in this like awkward position and like where a lot of our our schooling was like afraid of the new technologies that were coming up like mm-hmm. like i remember when i was in middle school and kind of going into high school, it was always kind of like, no, you can't use your internet for your sources. But then once I was like a senior in high school, it was like, no, the internet is just what we do now. Right, <laughs> right? Right, right. So like th- there became this weird, like aversion to technology that I think still lingers inside of like gens or uh, gen X and millennials. 
I yeah. could see that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, I certainly don't when I when I look at the vision of like the metaverse and like having property in the metaverse and stuff. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> now, I, uh, like, th- th- this is, this is my macro thing. thesis on it. My macro thesis is as the jo- as the robots continue taking the jobs in the in the real world, we're going to start move outsourcing jobs into metaverses. So it's like you can be a blacksmith in a fantasy world over here and you're making uh, digital currencies that then you're trading in for like Bitcoin and stuff like that. Right. And, and then, then buying your pizza with it. Yeah. But and because everything is becoming much more of like an attention economy. Right. So like people are now like finding new meaning in like worlds that we're discovering. <laughs> like we're like Christopher Columbusing this and going into new frontiers. Right. And okay. it's cyberspace rather than yeah. real space. And then additionally to that, I mean, if people's lives get longer, space travel and other innovation in that space in order to become a multi-planet species. And that's, that's again, a whole group of people are going to say like, Oh yeah, but you're just abandoning earth and Oh yeah. But once we leave the planet, are we still human? Right. I mean, cause you will change. Sure. And in fact, the, the, uh, the sci-fi series expanse is great about articulating just that dynamic, right? You got a whole bunch of people who are born in space, so they will physically look different. Uh, and they'll develop their own culture and then we'll have the same dynamics we have here on the planet, but system wide. All right. And then it's discovering multi-system, how to get to there. That's one theory around why, you know, the little green men kind of look the way they do taller, like really skinny, big heads. Cause they, they grow in like less gravity. And so they don't need all the musculature of a human that lives on a planet with earth's gravity. I don't know. Mm. Interesting. Also, like all their brain power is going up and there you go. <laughs> I know I, I saw somebody making, uh, making, um, uh, kind of an analysis of this is you see all these like these like super nerdy tech kids that are all about the transhumanism and this kind of goes into you they're trying to like leave their bodies almost and go into something else where you see a lot of these guys like if you look at like Vitalik or something founder looks like an alien it's like mm-hmm. yeah no it's like they're super skinny bodies and then just these big heads like like it's like a it's 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 what a lot of them look like, and you're Savage like, guy. it's like almost <laughs> it's almost like they're these transhumanists. They're like trying to leave their bodies and move into the next thing. Like I think there is a religious element to that. Because then he could have the body of Joe Rogan afterwards. Uh, yeah. Is that a causal relationship one way, or is it the other way that they just you know? They embody that role because they weren't really very good at sports. Well, yeah, what came, what, what came first, the chicken or the, the girls were right? that into it? So I was like, yeah, maybe I'll just go into computers instead. No offense to anybody into computers. I'm sure that I like computers. <laughs> don't we all? I mean, they make life great. Okay, we got all this technology around us. It makes life great. So I would totally do like the what's the Neuralink? You would right? do it. I mean, if you think about like in terms of how you could interface with a computer more efficiently to get more work done, to be more productive, in ways that would make that I would of course, giving my orientation to myself, use to make the world a better place. Okay. Why wouldn't you? Okay. Um, okay. I, I have a caveat. To that. Yeah, yeah. What if they install chat GPT in your neural link and it's, it has its certain set of values that don't align with yours. What if so it's not up to you, how thing, you use it? People think chat GPT is programmed. It's not programmed. It learns, right? So chat GPT itself changes its values all the time. Uh, so if you, you'll ask a question of it one day and then you ask the same question the next day, it'll change because it's learning based upon the inputs it's given. So, so, so hold on. So, so can I go to chat GPT and just give it inputs or is all it all AI works by inputs? So, right. so what's great I, about I, it is with open AI, you can download your own version of it and train it the way you want to train. It. Is that right? Okay, yeah. Well, not, not chat GDP specifically, but there are other AIs that specifically oh, sure. do that. Yeah. Right. Because you see all this stuff where it's like, I don't know. I don't remember who posted it. Might've actually been Jordan Peterson on Twitter. It was like two, uh, he's like prompted chat GPT to write a poem about Donald Trump. And it right. was like very negative and write a mm-hmm. poem about Joe Biden and it was glowing and it's mm-hmm. like 
that obviously implies you know, that like, it, it, has it was like he's bringing set, light to the world. Like, and if, stuff like that. If, if it was just harvesting data from the from the world, it would probably have a fairly split view, right? right because right. Trump is very very favorably viewed by a certain segment of society, and and vice versa with Joe Biden. And so, to me, I, I don't think that that thesis holds up necessarily. Well, it's 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 getting it's getting a bias from somewhere. Sure. Where is that? Let me let me let me preface that. ChatGDP is a product of AI using a particular technology that is the neural network brain thing for AI. Um, not an expert in this area. So the so my understanding is that it's both that, right? You can have a product like that, and they're gonna make it for corporations, right? So they're gonna make it corporation friendly. So it's gonna be, of course, progressive in the in these key ways that are important for corporations to adopt and use that AI. But nothing stops people from generating their own. Sure. Right. That's the that's the important that's my point. I mean, right? just like the barriers of like having a tremendous amount of computing power and the money to right. actually do it. All, right. right. So if there was a control thing, right. And, you know, of course I would, I give my, I would do Neuralink a caveat. Of course it would depend on what did they do with the proprietary information? Are we talking about Microsoft or is it Google? Are they going to sell ads to me? Sure. Are they coordinating with the NSA in order to try to control me? No. You know, like what is the, what, just, is, what is the actual parameter? I'm coming back to our, uh, our video we watched about brain transparency. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's what I want in my life. I just asked ChatGPT why uh, why they why people should subscribe to the Liberty Portal podcast. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. We'll read, it, we'll read it out. As an AI language model, I do not have personal preferences or biases. Well, I think we ju- I, I think that that's probably not true. However, I can provide you with some general information about the Liberty Portal podcast. The Liberty Portal podcast is a show dedicated to discussing libertarian philosophy, economics, and political theory. The show's hosts aim to provide listeners with insights and perspectives on a wide range of topics relating to individual freedom, free markets, limited government, and other key principles of libertarianism. This is kind of eerie right now. (laughs) Um, Continuing on here. Listeners who are interested in learning more about libertarianism or who want to hear thoughtful discussions on current events from a libertarian perspective may find the show informative and engaging. Additionally, those who are already familiar with libertarianism may appreciate the opportunity to hear from other libertarians and to deepen their understanding of the philosophy. Wow. Overall, whether you are new to libertarianism or a longtime follower of the philosophy, the Liberty Portal podcast may be a valuable resource for exploring and discussing libertarian ideas. I'll probably use that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the, uh, on our bio. Endorsed by (laughs) ChatGDP. Yes. Chat GPT approved. Okay, fair, a oh, fair, you know. Maybe so, I was harsh on it before. What, what's interesting is you can you can use it in lots of other ways. So right, you can say, for example, write this in the style of H. L. Mencken. And it will write it in a style as if H. L. Mencken wrote it. Uh, I was just no, it's okay. Talking. One of my favorite uses actually is for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> for Chat GDP, right? So I'll say, write the description of this magical place that only exists in, you know, Wikipedia and, you know, on fan fiction uh, in the style of J.R. Tolkien. And he'll, it'll write a first person perspective on that thing. And I can copy, make some edits, throw it into my D&D game. Oh, that's great. Right. So there's, that is a pedestrian use, but there's tremendous uses. I mean, I think of, think of AI and I love this analogy. Think of AI as the difference between farming with your hands versus farming with a tractor. Right. right. It's the a AI is the tractor. It's a tool. But the but the scale of what it means for creativity, thought, and ability to produce, you know, quality content is like that. Now it can be used hackishly, right? You can use a tractor, you can abuse a tractor in terrible ways, right? But you can't but it, it but it's just a tool. It doesn't it doesn't change that. And what a lot of people think, I think, when they think about the bias thing, is they're kind of thinking like, well, 
it's a tool to control me. And I think that's a legitimate concern, right? AI could get out of control. It could singularity us or something like that, right? But it is all, it, but the, the, the function of itself is neutral if what we do is have systems that allow us to hold accountable the people that we buy it from in an open system where we don't use intellectual property to control and cartelize the AI industry. I think we have a real opportunity to actually just 10x, 100x our ability to engage and create meaningful things for each other. I, I see these AI language models as, um, in, in the same way that calculators are to math, I see these langu language models in the same way as like calculators to writing. Um, it's going to be something where like schools and how we do things, people are going to have a certain aversion to it. Like, oh no, kids are cheating on their tests and things like that. But it's going to quickly become something that is just something that we use. And, and every school will eventually kind of adopt it in the same way. Like, you know, when you're, when you're learning math in school and you're in high school, like back in our days, like you can't use a calculator that's cheating, but now it's just kind of assumed in a lot of schools that, uh, you're always going to have a calculator in your pocket. So we might as well use this. And as long as you're learning like the mechanics of how to do things, you can use it for calculation, right? right, right. Chat GPT is going to be the same type of thing. Right? Yeah. I think about, um, man, that really prompted something. I remember I just might've lost it. Oh man, I'm sorry. My bad. You're God, fired. I totally you're absolutely botched fired. that. Holy cow. Like you, you had it. I spoke to a, uh, a developer the other day he works in, um, I think medical software and, uh, I asked him his thoughts on AI, you know, because it can write code like really well and really fast. And I was like, you know, is this threatening your job? You know, you feel concerned about the future? And he's like, no, not really. I think it's just going to make me more productive. It'll allow me to generate snippets of code that I can then inject into a larger project, something that's more complex that AI maybe can't quite do yet. And, you know, I think it was probably the all in pod. They were talking about how, you know, there's it, it, we've got this creator economy currently, but it it might evolve into sort of a narrator economy where, you know, this skill set uh, develops where even just prompting an AI language model intellectually doing it well efficiently is going to be its own skill set, just like like programming or like writing or like any of the other skills that we might be afraid that AI will supplant. Right. So you can you can make something in mass production and people will buy it. Right, because it'll be very affordable and cheap. What's interesting about this, and this was this was predicted that capitalism would take over would would Marx predicted that capitalism would take over the world and it would make everything cheap and homogenous and useless and terrible, right? Uh, and that after the workers' revolution, we'd have people making things that are unique and special and meaningful for other people. And what actually happened was capitalism took over the world, and then capitalism made a market for unique, special, niche things that are uniquely special for people because it was handmade, right? So the uh, we have a friend who makes handmade blacksmith stuff, right? He makes knives and things like that. Will Stelter, check him out. Yeah, you can, yeah, he's much bigger on YouTube than we are. <laughs> uh, hey, Still check him out. <laughs> thanks for sharing us that one time though, Will. Uh, the knives, now you can go down to Walmart and buy some knives, very affordable, but you can buy you know tools like that uh, that are handmade, and those have a unique market themselves. I think we'll we'll end up in a similar place when it comes to creativity and language and things like that with these language learning models. Is that you'll have you'll have a lot of mass production that'll happen on that, but it's going to be a very relatively known as you know something that's lesser quality than if someone says, "No, no, I don't do any of that stuff. I write all this stuff my own." And people will buy that and consume that just because it's made by a real human. Mm -hmm. And uh, there'll be a market there that will celebrate human individuality and creativity while empowering lots of people who don't have that natural skill to be able to write better, 
learn better and be able to be more productive. It's it's the same thing. Like I think we'll end up seeing kind of, you know, say maybe it's in fighting when we're talking about the transhumanism stuff, you'll end up seeing like pure fighters versus like cyborged out fighters. <laughs> like we'll say, we'll end like, up having like UFC. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Like, like oh. things, things like that. Right. But it's like yeah. the same type of thing where certain people are going to have a value that is like, I, I want to see this type of thing. That's much more like pure human driven content or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to see these ones where it's just like, Oh, I, I love where technology is going. And mm -hmm. you know, we're going to start to see these divisions and the market ultimately will play itself out on what people actually value and things, right? It already exists in bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. right? oh. So in bodybuilding, you have augmented bodybuilders who are injecting trend and D-ball and all this, you know, hyper uh, hormone changing stuff. And then you have the natural league and they don't look like the same kind of humans. No, right? you yeah. got... <laughs> they're both the same species, yeah. but they're, you know, they're not both human, right? Yeah, they're, pure, they're something else. pure human category <laughs> and then roided out human category, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right. Well, it's awesome. I mean, because there always are these counter-cultural uh, movements, right? I mean, and I, 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 we see one today with the advent of all this technology. Like I have friends who intentionally use flip phones hmm. because they don't want a smartphone constantly dinging in their pocket, all these notifications. It seems like there, there's a movement back towards homesteading towards farming and gardening towards being involved in nature getting out of the the technological box that we've sort of constructed for ourselves which you know as productive as it can make us as entertaining and engaging as it can be there is maybe some kind of primal human drive to resist some of those changes hmm. whether that's intentional you know conscious or subconscious is maybe yet to be determined but um, I think it's a really interesting frontier that we find ourselves on. And that's why, that's why freedom is so important, right? Because as the technology evolves and the values evolve, people can change what they do in order to reflect and live out their values. If you have a central government telling everybody what to do, we ultimately are forced into patterns that don't represent who we are. And that's, I think, a cause of a lot of depression. It's a cause of a lot of people's listlessness and lost uh, feeling that they have when it comes to being disconnected from the world and atomistic and, un and alone, mm -hmm. right? Where if we, um, if we have systems of freedom and tolerance and openness that are mutually beneficial, we would be in a much better spot to realize those values and allow people to, to do the things that, that work best for them, whether it's going out to Homestead or plugging yourself into a computer and surfing cyberspace. I love it. Guys, I think this has been a really great conversation. It's been fun. And we haven't really talked about the news at all. <laughs> no, so sometimes I think it's good for us to just bro out and philosophize about things for a while, especially yeah, when there's not a whole lot to talk about. I mean, there is a lot to talk about, but you know, I think that you can get bogged down in just staying stuck in the news cycle. And it is important to break out once in a while and think about bigger pictures. And that is something that we try to do every episode, but I've really, it's been a refreshing shift. Had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks guys. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.